here again, Gabriel. Hello. Hi. I forced you to watch the show again. I was coerced by the promise of good television, Did and you it en- delivered. You enjoy it? Yeah. yeah. Good television. I, it wasn't something that I was ever planning on watching, even though everybody was saying how good it was. Because it's not really typically the kind of thing that I would watch. You know, it's just yeah. rich people. What are we doing? Living today? lavishly. Today we're talking about White Lotus season two. Season two. HBO's latest and greatest. I mean, everything they do is high production value with great writing, but except for the end of Game of Thrones. But we don't talk about that. And who, who is with us? Do we have with us today? It's Allie Burnett. Allie. Pleasure to be here. Put in the applause soundboard effect here. You always say that. Every time. And you always <laughs> deliver. No, I don't. You did it one time, didn't you? I did, but like... That was good. But why do you say it every time? Okay, so... It's iconic. It is. It is iconic. Okay, I wanted to say too, really quick at the start of this, when we saw White Lotus season one, I think I even asked you, Allie, like, do you think I should do an episode on this? And you were like, eh, it was good, but it was like a little bit on the nose with its themes of class issues and colonialism and stuff like that. But with season two, I thought it was much better than season one personally, but the themes um, about power dynamics and sex and gender roles and things like that and, and the characters I also liked a lot more. I felt like season two was a lot more like to the point yeah. than, than bouncing around some of what season one did. But I, I did, I want to say I enjoyed the heck out of season one. I just, I just, at the time, I think we're also really busy and I had to like sacrifice my darlings. So yeah, season two, I think though is definitely worth talking about, which is why we're talking about it today. And White Lotus is an anthology season show, right? Yeah. Well, it's turning out to be. Yeah. And I had no idea the director was Schneebly yeah. from School of Rock. Uh, it's Schneeble. <laughs> yes. I knew I knew that guy. Yeah. I like knew his face and like, what do I know him from? And I was thinking like, maybe like, was he in like a 90s, like <laughs> teen movie or something? Mm-hmm. Like a, she's all that type thing. And then, no. Nope, Mike Sh- White. Schneebly. Yes. Mike White. And yeah, the White look- Lotus. <gasps> That's why it's called. No, I have no idea why it's called White Lotus. He for sure intentionally. The Mike White Lotus. He's he's written a lot of. From what I've read, he's written a lot of his own perspective into the show. Yeah, I mean, the show just overall. We'll we'll talk about kind of what it is and what it does, but it's so it's it's so intelligent and the dialogue and the writing is so smart and intellectual. But it's also it, it doesn't pander. It even often feels like intelligent in the way that these characters are directed to be just real or, or kind of dumb or stupid or quirky, but it doesn't feel abstract. It feels like these could be real people like being like residing in this hotel and, and doing stupid things, you know? Yeah. So that's, and I think that shows a, a great degree of intelligence in like the writing and, and the themes that Mike White wanted to present. Mm-hmm. But so stoked not only did we get a season two but we got it so quickly it felt like i feel like we just finished season one and now we're here watching season two like in the turnaround like i i was thinking like oh there's gonna be season two there's no way they can capture kind of what they do with season one because i thought season one was so good but they did and they excelled 
at it. Like mm-hmm. they, they went above and beyond. Mm-hmm. The, the cast was amazing. Yeah. I, I, even, I liked the characters the setting more in this worked one. really well. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So let's talk about what White Lotus is. White Lotus is essentially, at least so far in these first two seasons, the season starts off with a death and they tease that someone died at a White Lotus hotel and you don't know who it is. And then it cuts, it goes back in time and it says however many days, like five days, a week, a week ago or something. And then the show starts playing out from there. And, and the same thing happened in season two. It's like, there's a death and then it goes back and it starts to show what happened and how it happened. And in the first season, there was a bunch of characters, uh, Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria is in it. Alex Sedario, the dude, I can't remember his name from the season nine of the office. <laughs> Steve Zahn was in it and a couple other really good characters. Murray Bartlett. He was amazing as the head of that white Lotus in Hawaii. And then season two picks up with all new characters. Jennifer Coolidge is the only through line character along with who I'm calling Uncle Rico, who is her husband that she met in season one. Love Uncle Rico. Ned. And Megan Fa- Fahey? Fahey? I never could figure that out. She is the wife to I feel like Cameron. It's just Theo James. Theo Cameron. James. You know he's British, but his American accent is incredible. Yes. They it's were so- they were both excellent. Yeah, I like them a lot. And they're kind of tagging along with Aubrey Plaza and Will Sharp, who are another young thirty somethings couple who are rich and successful. And there's two rich and successful couples vacationing. These two guys met in college. Uh then there are these three uh, and I call them like the generational Italians. Um, Italian American. Michael Imperioli plays Dominic. He's the dad. And his father, who's the grandpa, is played by F. Murray Abraham. The legend. Just a great actor. And he plays Bert. And then his grandson is played by Adam DiMarco. And he plays Albie, who meets this girl who's the. This sounds really complicated. And if it sounds complicated, it's because it is, but you'll get it if you watch it. The assistant to Jennifer Coolidge's character, her name's Portia. She's played by Haley Lou Richardson. And then there are some hotel workers, Sabrina Impacchiator. Names are hard, huh? Yep. Wait, no. Impacchiator. Impacchiator. Yeah. It's Italian. She plays Valentina, and she's like the head of this White Lotus in Italy. And then... There are two escorts. Es- escorts, sex, sex, sex experts. Well, one of them's a escort. The other is just kind of tagging along. Yeah, one, and one of those girls is as Mia, and she's played by Beatrice Grano. And then the other girl is played by Simona Tabasco, and, and her name is Lucia. It's Lucia. Oh, Lucia. Yeah. And then there's there's Lucia. another guy they introduce along with a bunch of uh, gay guys that end up being a huge plot device. We love the gays. Uh, his name is Leo Woodall, and he plays Jack. Mm. And the other, the main gay guy is Tom Hollander, who's another great actor. Yeah, and he plays Quentin. He's he was in Pirates, wasn't he? Yes, and he was in Pride and Prejudice as Mr. He's Collins. He's so good. He was like my oh, he's favorite. Great. He's always like a comic relief that is unexpected. Like he plays this type of comic relief in a very serious manner. Yeah. Which is perfect for this role, where there's like, yeah. there's something lingering. You, mm-hmm. you can't put your finger on mm-hmm. some ulterior motive, which causes his smarmy behavior to be so enticing. Mm, indeed. Anyway, a bunch of stuff goes down. There's a lot of kind of crazy twists and turns, and we'll touch on a lot of that throughout this podcast. I don't, I don't want to recap the whole thing because it would take a long time to recap the entire plot. 
But essentially what happens is this season centers around power dynamics, specifically played through gender and sex and the kinds of power dynamics between couples of all kinds, between gay, straight, couples, married couples, adultery. Father and son, yeah. like it's all types of transactional relationships. And and it gets very, very hot. Yeah, spicy. <laughs> and a lot of things lead to the 30-somethings couples kind of ambiguously potentially cheating on each other a with, double, each, with each other. A wife swap? Yeah, but not like kind of unbeknownst to uh, what's happening there. Like we... We'll talk about this later, but anyway, it's it's kind of ambiguous. Um, it's and then there's also this kind of coup to potentially take Jennifer Coolidge's money because she's like a, a multi-millionaire um, heir to some sort of fortune, and so these these gay guys try to take her out and show her a good time, and they the gays are trying to kill they, her. They hire a hitman to try to <laughs> kill her, and she kind of, even though she's kind of aloof and and quirky, she kind of because of Portia her assistant she kind of gets turned on to that idea that they might be trying to kill her and she ends up killing all of them uh this big spoilers she ends up killing all of them and then trying to escape off of this yacht that she's trapped on with them she falls and hits her head and falls into the water and drowns incredible and she's she ends up being the person that dies which was shocking to me because she was the through line between season one and two and i thought and i think everybody thought that she'd be the through line up to if they do a season three, but you know, that's dead in the water. Oof. Too soon, Steve. But, um, she's a queen. You respect her. She's amazing. Jennifer Coolidge is amazing. And then the, the Holy Trinity, uh, from season three of dark, the Italian, uh, generational fellows. Um, what? <laughs> you know how like in season three of dark, there was like the three yeah. guys that were the same guy of generation. They, they're constantly, back and forth on, you know, the, the dad blames his dad, the grandpa for his problems. And his, he's a sex addict and he has cheated on his wife and he, he can't get in good with her. And he's asking his son to like speak to his mom on, on, on his dad's behalf, but he doesn't want to do it because he thinks his dad's scum. And then, (laughs) and then he gets involved in his kind of first sexual endeavor. Uh, so it seems and then he, you know, keeps going down that road throughout his st- <laughs> his stay at White Lotus, and and the whole time these escorts who are kind of sent like stay around the hotel and hang out around the hotel are kind of playing all three of these guys and sleeping with multiple of them, or encountering multiple of them multiple times, and then eventually kind of play them and get a, a crap ton of money from out of them and kind yeah. of run away. And then that shows, you know, a whole different kind of power dynamic and power of sexuality in women. Anyway, that's kind of the season. And season two ends in this really really interesting way. It's a twisted happy ending. Yeah. Everybody really gets what, you know, what they wanted, except for Jennifer Coolidge. But even she had a victory. So it was like a twisted, it was like a bittersweet, happy ending. Yeah. Like I said, we, I glossed over a lot, but that's basically what happens. So anyway... What did you guys think of the airport at the end? They show that girl walking and all three of the, the generation guys turn around and look at her walk away. I thought that was really funny. I thought the dad refused to look after she went past. Because I feel like they made a point about uh, F. Murray Abraham and the, the younger guy looking. But I thought he only looked at her 
and then didn't look back, right, when she passed? Or did he look back? No, he looked back. Okay, well then, well, nothing's changed. <laughs> well, no, it showed that, like... I thought there was growth. The, well, I think it was showing, like, the sins of the father being passed down through generation. Like, you had... Well, that was the whole purpose of the story. The sin of the father, the sin of the father. Well, yeah, it's like, Albie, he's just as sexually aroused and, like, horny as the previous generations, but he just is trying to channel it in a more... I don't know, a more diplomatic way. Well, it's funny because he's like, to use the modern term woke, he's like the most woke mm-hmm. of them all. He's Stanford graduate. But he still falls in the same traps. He still falls in the same traps. And it, not exactly the same. Like he's not intending to be duplicitous or unfaithful, you know, to someone. You know, he's His not intentions married. are not bad. Yeah, but he, he get, he's caught in by the mark. Like he is a mark for he's caught into the whole like... Mm-hmm sexuality angle of the story mm-hmm. yeah. idealizing a beautiful woman and yeah all of that um yeah i thought so just coming into the season and the difference like from the previous season how the previous season they're in hawaii and in this new season they're in italy and just like the context of being rooted in like an old world environment i think was really significant because the location of the white lotus wherever it is plays a significant role i think in the narrative and like the marriage between the location and the narrative but um art being like a huge emphasis within this season like the whole Mm -hmm. um, intro um, just features um, a bunch of different imagery of different art um, as well as throughout the show from like tapestries and paintings to pottery you're seeing a lot of like carnal images you're seeing like a lot of like sexual images but also just um, relational images I suppose like between men and women or between the same sex or between even like like there's like an image of like a woman and a bird of some sort and you're seeing like all of this really like erotic imagery very very purposefully um because obviously like sexuality and relationships and transactional relationships are a huge theme of the show but one thing i thought was like so interesting was like that piece of pottery in harper and ethan's hotel room and in the beginning you get this element of the mythic as the story is told about this woman and uh, her husband and her husband commits adultery and I think has another family or something with an, a different woman. And then she essentially has revenge on him in the story. She cuts off his head, right? Yeah, she cuts off his head. Okay. <laughs> this like brutal, brutal revenge, right? Um, yeah. It's a transaction, if you will. Um, and in the end, after, after Harper um, and Ethan come to a certain point that pottery is broken, it's shattered. So like throughout, I think their relationship was something that was really interesting in the yeah. show because throughout the throughout the whole show, they can't really engage with sex. They're not. They don't share this like specific intimacy. And then as Harper fools around with Cameron, and then Ethan, his reaction is is he goes to try and kind of beat up Cameron, um, and they have this physical exchange. But then after that, he goes to Daphne, and they have this really important conversation because Daphne's reaction to finding out that her husband probably just committed adultery was basically... Again. Again, because she's already aware. She's yeah, already aware. Yeah. They have a, a... She's been dealing with this for a while. Yeah, they so. have a dysfunctional relationship, obviously, um, where she tries to justify his cheating. But she 
basically says, well, we don't really know what goes on in other people's minds. And it's kind of a mystery and it's sexy and she's justifying his actions and his thought, his inner thought life mm-hmm. um, with, oh, it's just mysterious and this and that. And then she makes a comment like, you know, we all just have to do what we have to in order not to be the victim. Mm-hmm. And so then she kind of invites Ethan to have a sexual exchange with her, which is it's heavily implied that they go off and do whatever they do. And Sex, then, but you don't see it. I want to just say that. <laughs> no, but it's it's. I'll touch back on this later. Ambiguity. It, it certainly happens. Well. Almost In my certainly. very strong opinion, it <laughs> certainly happens. Well, because afterwards, Cameron has a huge character change where yep. he is immediately um, drawn to Harper intimately and passionate and very much takes control. And they have this, you know... Uh, you know, great intimacy with one another, and that's when the pottery shatters. Um, and so he's able to not feel like the victim anymore. He's able to take control, and thus there's this transaction that happens once again in a relationship. Ethan and Harper, you mean? Yeah. It's like yes, the relationship Ethan and Harper. was mm-hmm. saved, kind of, in a way. Yes, but well, is it just to up the ante again? I think it's. I think it's showing like, okay, right now, they might feel a little bit more even and, and Ethan feels like, I don't even know. Okay. But I think it's going to go lopsided again. I think it's going to up and down and up and down. Well, tumultuous. Sure. But that was, that's, I don't know. This may be tangential, but that seemed like to be the whole point, at least from Harper or uh, April Ludgate's perspective was that there Mm -hmm. was no spark. Like they loved each other. Sure. There was an understanding and a Mm -hmm. connection, but there was no spark. And Mm -hmm. this allows them to have that spark, which was the missing part of their relationship. So in my head my headcanon for this story moving forward Mm. is that their relationship is essentially saved because of this fucked up wisdom excuse my french no it's fine that cameron and daphne have given them because they now have this like this back and forth right Mm -hmm. this this kind of battle that gives them the ability to have this physical intimacy it's twisted but but it it, it seems i don't yeah but i don't think it's like a like a healthy physical of course oh, not no, no. absolutely not but okay. i'm saying it's now functional because before they were both basically you know dead fish yeah yep i one of the things that i thought was interesting is how in the beginning cameron and daphne are a certain way and and harper is like super judgmental toward them and and so is ethan and he's ethan's kind of standoffish he's he's not a very abrasive character he's kind of passive and in the end when they're in the airport and this is kind of solidified by that last dinner where Cameron shows up and makes a speech and it's really awkward, <laughs> but they accept it they, you know, they, they still yeah. go through the dinner, they go yeah. back and then that's when they make love to each other or whatever that was for the first time in a long time. But the thing that was interesting to me was like, they essentially, you know, they start off in different places being in completely different places as these couples and they have completely different ideologies. And in the end, it seems like Harper and Ethan become a lot more like Cameron and Daphne. Mm, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's like they're very, sure. it's almost like they're the, they have given over to their way of thinking, which mm-hmm. also is rooted. And, and this should also kind of be noted, but it could be neither here nor there, but it's rooted in the fact that they, have become very successful and rich mm-hmm. and they have the ability to kind of, I don't know, fuck people over. <laughs> They're not in survival mo- yeah. mode, certainly. And so there's that as well. But I still want to point out the ambiguity about the fact that Ethan and Daphne had sex. You're right, Allie, 
most likely it happened. It probably happened and it did pave the way for Ethan to finally take charge of his sexuality and stop watching porn and have sex with his wife. But (laughs) But the the fact that you don't see it and there is a little bit of like mystery there is pretty cool. And it also the other kind of mystery in the show that isn't explicitly stated, but is heavily implied and all but proven is the fact that we're, we're not really sure and we still don't know whether the gay guys and the hitman were actually going yes. to kill yeah. uh, Jennifer Coolidge. I mean, JC. the rope and the gun and the duct tape. It could have just been a kinky night. Well, I mean, you know he also I mean? could have... He was virtually the, confirmed to be a mobster, but we don't know if he was going to kill her. That's the point. He could have just been like, I'm going to tie you up and, and duct tape you and, and hold you hostage, and it could have been like a, a playful sexual thing. Or he might not have even been planning to use that. Uh, yeah, who knows? But the thing is, is but here, here's... I'm saying it again. More than likely... It is most likely that they were going to kill her off and take her money. But the fact that they don't explicitly state it is one of the reasons I think this show is so good and so intelligent. And and the same way that they don't explicitly state that Ethan was going to have sex with Daphne, there's a lot left open and ambiguous intentionally to leave you like it gives it satisfying enough to like make you feel like I'm emotionally satisfied and I feel like I have closure but it's open-ended enough to be like, man, that was such like a, a curious season of television. And I, I almost don't even know why it affected me the way that it did, you know, as it did like emotionally and intellectually uh, stimulating because of the ambiguity behind, I don't know, the mystery box being still, still kind of partly closed by the end of the season. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's to me that's masterful filmmaking, and it's the thing I'm always searching for when it comes to filmmaking. And I'm I'm using you know saying filmmaking, and I mean television as well, obviously, because this is like quality motion picture. Mm-hmm. It's the home box office. Yeah, there's like things that are like more obvious, and then there's things that are more implicit that you have to like marinate over in your mind. Yeah. And even even in a sense, like the three dudes, the three Italian Americans, yeah, like you don't know where their story's going to go. There was closure, but it's like, you know, what's going to happen when Dominic gets back to the states with his wife? Are they mm-hmm. going to like reconnect? You know, you don't know how. Or what's going to happen when Albie finds out that he's sleeping with the same girl that just slept with his dad? That well, shoe, he probably will never. Find yeah, that he'll never know. Other him. shoe never dropped. No, but the whole time you're thinking as as yeah, you're watching yeah. the show, like, oh, are they going to find out? Is that going to be? Is that going to be the explosive moment between the characters? But no, instead, what happens is these two characters become more bonded over the fact that, like, he's having a sexual experience and his dad totally understands where he's coming from. He extorted his dad. Yeah, and, and they, they, <laughs> they have a closer father-son relationship because of it instead of, like, uh, having it be this implicit. Even though his father's still being deceptive. Yes, yes. No, I, I'm not saying these characters are wholesome. I'm definitely yeah. not saying that. Albie's probably one of the more most wholesome. He was, I mean, he's the most like pure hearted woke yeah. character in White Lotus. Portia sure. is, I thought she was like a brilliant character because she's like Very this nihilistic, mm-hmm. kind of depressed person. <laughs> she's just so funny in it, I think. Like, she just offers like this very specific role. Like, even that conversation she has with Jack where she says, like, I just want to be satisfied. Like, you know, she's, she's just never satisfied. It's like that Sisyphus type of mentality of like, we just keep pushing, pushing the rock up the hill. And there's like, where is the satisf- you know, where does the mm-hmm. satisfaction? Mm-hmm. 
And, and I think she's fu- pretty self-consumed she, too. Yeah. She finally asks for Albie's number in the end. Cause yeah. I, she realizes like she doesn't want that kind of, but thing. she's still, it's pretty clear that she's not going to probably say anything about her boss yeah. or, or share anything. So there's like this self consumption. I think that's also present within her. I think she's definitely like, there's some sort of like commentary, I think about her and like maybe the generation. Yeah. The young, 100%. This, you know, twenties generation. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. It's pretty pretty intense, honestly. I think I think a lot of people in that generation are trying to find like satisfaction in something and feel super jaded and mm-hmm. and so I, I I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think somewhere in that same conversation Portia has with Jack about being satisfied, there was an interesting thing. One of my favorite little conversations, or like ideas from the show uh which was also echoed in another storyline i think between harper and ethan and cameron and daphne was Mm -hmm. the idea uh like you said earlier ali about like nihilism versus uh optimism Mm -hmm. and neither of these positions are entirely like pure like the optimism is born of ignorance and Mm -hmm. the the nihilism in these cases is born of a kind of like self-pity it seems between like Portia or Harper, whoever's speaking about it. Mm-hmm. And there was a really interesting dynamic and conversation between these two parties and both storylines where it was something that I feel like is super relevant and it's echoing a lot of conversation we have even amongst ourselves in today's world where it's like, oh, the world is literally burning down and simultaneously yeah. there's still so much beauty in it and so much to live for. Yes. And something I've thought about too in terms of like, I think Harper said it about like raising kids in this world and they're thinking about not having kids because it's like, why would you have kids in this world? Cause mm-hmm. it's burning down. And that was, that was one of the themes and the running ideas in season two of white Lotus. that was really fascinating to me. was like this kind of ignorant or misplaced optimism versus this weird or misplaced like depression or cynicism. Mm-hmm. Cause the optimism came from a place that it was like, it's like arriving at the right conclusion for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. And like Jack presents that argument to Portia in his own way too. He sees all the beauty in the world because mm-hmm. a, it was so terrible, you know, up until this point, but also he's trying to capture the beauty in his own way. Cause Jack is abused and he's part of this other yeah. system where he's forced to be like, an enforcer, a sex yeah, a sex worker, and like a low-level like jobber for the mob mm-hmm. or for this mm-hmm. weird kind of community of individuals. <laughs> I don't know, and it, so it was fascinating. Like both parties were having this super important conversation, but both it was like they were both arriving at this point in a twisted way, mm-hmm. which was like the whole point of the show. Like all these characters, like I said earlier, they have a happy ending, mm-hmm. but there's it's not healthy, the relationships. Mm-hmm. And the way they end up at these places, it's like, you know, Albie extorted his dad for 50,000 plus in cash, but mm-hmm. but Dominic gets to come out okay because Albie, his son is putting in a good word with him for his, <laughs> with his wife, with his mm-hmm. ex-wife. And everything yeah. is just so messed up, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's so satisfying. Yeah. The places we, we finally got mm-hmm. to. Totally. And there's, there's other dynamics we haven't even talked about, like the dynamic between the piano player and the other escort Mia. friend who like her whole, she really just wants to sing and, and kind of do art and, and play the piano and sing and just be known for her gift of music and she's trying to extort kind of the hotel manager through sexuality to try to get to be in that position. I mean, she also seems to enjoy the relationship. And then the, yeah. the guy 
who was the piano player of the hotel ends up taking he what he thinks is viagra and like almost dying yeah because it's not viagra it's something else and then um then he comes back and then the the hotel manager fires the guy and gives it to the girl who is the friend of the escort mm-hmm. so because she essentially paid her yeah with sex with sex yeah and so the but that's like a whole other power dynamic that you know ultimately screws over other people for a whole different reason and then there's there's the 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 conversation of the girl who's in love with uh she's engaged to that other guy that that got transferred out and she keeps asking valentina to transfer him back yeah that's like yeah yeah it it they're like subtle storylines but there and there was that that existed in season one as well you got these little insights into the hotel workers and their kind of ideas about Mm -hmm. um it played actually a bigger part in season My one. My friend from high school who was yeah star in the show. He was in it, but yeah. To to comment on what you said, like you're just bringing up again the transactional relationships, mm-hmm. and like Mia, um, Mia and Lucia. But like in the end, that last scene I thought that was so brilliant of the girls. They're walking through the streets and they're giddy and they're in beautiful clothing and they're smiling at everyone. And the, who she said was the pimp was just a friend of hers working at another place. And um, the song that's playing is um, uh, the best things in life are oh, free. Right. Yeah. And um, which is like obviously very ironic, but I just thought it was such a good ending scene because you get kind of that optimism, yeah. but it's drenched and this cynicism of the fact that it's all transactional. Yeah. It's not free. Like she's literally giving her body to get these things that she mm-hmm. it basically would think is free, but it's not right. free. Yeah. Right. It's, it's costing her something, uh-huh. whether she realizes it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this thing is layered. Like, like an a, onion. Like a glass onion. Oh. But the um, center is in plain sight. One of the, one of the other things that I absolutely loved about, this season as I did in season one is just, there are some amazing one-liners delivered oh by Jennifer God. Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge. She's so funny. She's a queen. God. She's amazing. Just like the part, the, like her interactions with Portia when she's like, Portia, you need to get your shit, shit together. together. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever. It, in this <laughs> season, cause, cause in the first season she came off as kind of like, like a little bit dumb. You didn't know where she was coming from. She kind of seems like airheaded. Um, this season I felt like, you know, I think it mentioned it was like maybe two years after the events of the first season. You get more characterization. In she this no, season. she has she has these moments of wisdom. Yeah, where yeah, she's yeah. Imp- she's trying to talk to Portia, being like, "I've been where you are, and mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to lead you down a good path." And and I feel like she really came into a better place than she was in season one, where she was really looking for some sort of um, spiritual fulfillment and and wholeness because she was like kind of a broken person in season one and then she ends up getting married to uncle rico and then i'm so sorry i don't know his name um his name's greg in the show no yeah i get you're saying the actor but his name's greg in the show uncle rico anyway and then she almost gets a little bit even wiser outside of realizing maybe she can never be satisfied in the way that she wants because of her, her wealth. And she tries to find and offer ways, not just for herself, but for Portia as well to deal with who she is and who she's become outside of that knowledge. And I I say that, but ironically, 
the the one question she asks after she ends up killing everybody on the yacht is yes <laughs> is, Dude, was Greg having an affair? Was Greg having an affair? Like that she's still me. after all of this stuff, and she's gone through so much. The one thing she's still worried about is whether her husband was having an affair or not. Uh, she's like, just tell me. But no, some amazing one-liners. One of my favorites being like, ah, honey, uh, he was fucking his uncle. <laughs> I didn't want to tell you I before. Didn't tell These gays are trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Oh my gosh. So she's a, good. She's a legend. Yeah. Very I know. Weird. I was like kind of thinking, oh, she's going to be in the last season. Yeah. And it was very unexpected that she was yeah. the one. Yeah. Up to until die. the moment where she falls off the boat, it's like, yeah, she's going to make it. Because they had already she's established like, you dead got bodies. This. You got this. Oh my gosh. And then like the Horrible. little, the little, oh, because she falls off the boat and hits her head. It's just, it's, and I love the way Mike White talked about it in the post episode, like breakdown thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. What do you say? He was like talking about how her story is this tragedy because that's the whole point. It's echoing the the opera, right? Mm-hmm. But Mike wanted her to go out on this high note, like yeah. Uh, so she has that scene where she's shooting her captors, her supposed captors. But then there's still this added this this kind of levity, this tragic demise of her, right? You know, falling off the boat anyway, mm-hmm. and just ending her story there. Mm-hmm. It was such such a brilliant stroke, yeah. in my opinion. Well, for and sure. the fact for that sure the was. theme of death in the White Lotus, like the series, like each each one starting with a death and wrapping it up in the end and yeah. finding out what happened, it's also I think like very intentional because it's like this idea that like only in death do these things end. This power struggle, the yeah. sexual transactions, the class different you know power struggles and all of those different things Mm -hmm. and And also but practically too it gives you so much tension in the finale like every story you're thinking who's gonna die who's gonna die because like ethan Ethan is choking cameron underwater you're like oh cameron's dead for sure yeah yeah but then he doesn't make it you're like who's gonna be the body i noticed there was some foreshadowing though thinking thinking back i didn't i didn't know watching it but thinking back the foreshadowing like like when um tanya's told that story about the island and the house on the island and a woman lived at that house but she didn't yeah. want to sell in her old mm-hmm. age <laughs> and they kept trying to come and you know buy it from her and then the next day they found the woman's body in the ocean yeah mm. and like that's they so tanya's her. situation right it's just these people who are hungry after her after her, what she has and the only way to get it in mm-hmm. their hands is to kill her yeah yep wealth is a hell of a thing seems like money can't buy happiness huh you would know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. No, I know, I know. Uh, Gabe is from old money. Old money. <laughs> I'm, I, what do they call it? Like legacy wealth or yeah. generational wealth? No, I, they're just doing it wrong. I could buy happiness. Yeah. Well, you should just ask James Cameron. Anyway, uh, here at the end, we'll wrap up by saying, especially on that theme of Death Alley, that season three is it going to be about death what? and Eastern religion. And those are going to be the themes to look forward to for season three. Looking forward to see who the new cast is and all that good stuff. Can I just say also I love the soundtrack yeah. by Cristobal Tapia de Vier, who's done other HBO work like The Third Day, but also he just did the soundtrack for the horror movie I was talking about a few months ago called Smile. Oh, He does yeah. this great work with like bells and yeah like chimes and also yep. choral stuff like yeah, there yeah. is a white lotus theme or something yeah. that came in every time there was yeah so haunting 
And it's such a great, like... There have been a lot of memes about that. Was that not in the first season? It, no, it was. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was slightly different. Yeah, it was like a different This one, thing. This one was more like, it, it almost had like an EDM feel to it. Yeah. In season yeah. one, it was like more like... Normal. It was slower and yeah. had a little bit of a different uh It adds that idea. sinister edge, especially with the storylines like Jay, Jay Coolidge when she's like, yeah. these gays are up to no good. <laughs> and you're like, the soundtrack comes in and you're like, oh my God, this yeah. is like leaning into a horror. Yeah. Well, the whole, the whole season, you know, especially in between the scenes, there are these elements of like suspense, like through music and the transitions that we are like, you know, you're seeing all these close-ups of the shore and the ocean yes. like aggressively hitting. Everything. I love the sound design on those. Yeah. Yeah. Like high frame rate shots of the uh-huh. beach when the water's coming in, uh-huh. especially at the end when it was intercutting think, with Ethan and Cameron's right. story there. It was like this, this big, almost symbolic. Yep. Like the, the, I, I actually took that note down. Yeah. I started taking notes in the final episode. Yeah. Because it was like the water or the beach itself is yeah. this kind of yes, uh, it's plot, like elemental force. It's all an allegory, and it was actually even more prominent in season one. Which this was a carryover, like those cutscenes and and the music and those like transitional like close-ups were all a carryover from season one and what they were doing there. I think there was actually less of it here. Which which when you see it, you're like, okay, they're doing this again. In season one, it's like there are moments where like it really just focused on that for like quite a while, and you're like, "What are they doing?" Like, it's almost like, "Where am I? Why am I here? Is this weird? Is it supposed to be surrealistic?" Like, <laughs> like it it just feels so kind of strange, but yeah. really, really, really neat that they are able to pull it off and be this successful, you know, as an HBO show. So, and it really is a cultural phenomenon. I think. Yes. Yeah, I've heard people even really want there to be. Uh, a White Lotus Hotel franchise. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Oh, in real life? Just... Yeah. Does, let's Can just make imagine? it. Let's just make it. Yeah, so right here at the end, we'll play the, the White Lotus Season 2 theme. Cristobal. Cristobal.